totally football show, totally the World Cup. Kiss my Russian ass. So, day two. Thought Thursday's game was good. Hold my Iberian derby, say Spain and Portugal, with a 3-3 thriller featuring Big Ron Magic and a shot from Nacho that, strangely, didn't have any dip on it. Elsewhere, Uruguay invert the pyramid and do Egypt 1-0, and Morocco rolled by a last-minute own goal. Saturday, it's big. Four games, France, Australia, but also Argentina, Iceland, Peru, Denmark and Croatia, Nigeria. Friends around the world, join hands to tell us how it's going to be in the Totally Football Show. And in the studio, listeners, hello to you, by the way. We have for you Matt Stanger. Hi, Matt. Hello. Jack Lang. Evening. Tom Williams. Hello, James. Ready to speak football at us. And uh, Tom, by the way, how's your TV? Fixed. Bingo. Just in time for a sensational start to this World Cup. And when I say sensational, I mean Spain 3, Portugal 3. Sensational. A match to get you fired with enthusiasm like a Spain manager. What was your favourite bit of it, Jack? Well, obviously the Ronaldo free kick at was the end it? was That's amazing. Pretty heart stopping. There were a few whoops in, yeah. the, in the room. Right. I think what was so special about that was that literally the entire planet at that point was going, yeah, Ronaldo free kick. Do you know he's had 45 and he's never scored one? And he stepped up and he did this. And the opening night for them at the World Cup as European champions. Another De Gea already let two past him tonight. Rafael Guerrero there is window dressing. Ronaldo through the line! Pow! What did you think, Matt? I think it's one of the best free kicks he's ever scored. It was reminiscent it's of that. It's pretty much the only free kick he's ever scored. Well, for, for Portugal, certainly. But uh, it was reminiscent of that effort for Manchester United against Portsmouth, wasn't it? With the, uh, the way he hit it straight on, the dip. Uh, superb. I mean, it was good. And I think also because of the context, getting the point, he was fu- he was so upset. And he hadn't really featured too much in that second half. And then he came up with that. I'm, I was quite surprised when you said the Ronaldo kick, though, as your favourite bit, because, Tom, I thought he was going to go for that incredible Nacho. What, half volley, would you call it? Iniesta. Aliás, era David Silva. Espanha, como consegue, num curto espaço, soltar os passos. Atenção à Espanha, corta Portugal. Vai insistir o remate de Nacho. Gol da Espanha. Yeah, I mean, if when Nacho's goal had gone in, you'd said that that would not prove to be the standout moment of the game, you'd have been pretty surprised because yeah. that was a sensational goal. I mean, we were all reaching around for comparisons. I think the, the Cucho Martina goal for Southampton against Arsenal a couple of seasons back was the first one that came to mind. But he hit the ball. It was it was so high when he hit it. It was really, you know, bouncing up at him. So to get that amount of control and fade it just inside the post, beautiful goal. Um, and then Ronaldo pops up at the end with a sensational free kick. That Nacho strike again. It's the way that he strokes across the ball, even as he hits it with force. It just 
magnificent. Yeah, I think that the best angle of it was the one from behind him, and you saw the ball really spat off the turf at it, and it was a really difficult shot to control. He got his head over it, hit it with the outside of the foot, faded it outside the post and, and drew it back in. Uh, a lovely goal. And with the added bonus of hitting both posts before it went in. Two sensational moments. There are going to be broader conclusions that people are going to want from, from a game like that. What, what, what might they be, Jack? Well, I think people will look at Spain first because of the managerial situation. And just in the lineup, I think Fernando Hierro didn't stray too far from what I think Julian Lopetegui was, was planning. Diego Costa, there's been a bit of debate about who's going to start up front for Spain. Diego Costa, I think, settled that debate with a lot of conviction, really. That first goal, especially reminiscent of a goal he scored for Chelsea against Manchester City a couple of years ago, really just bullying his man. Yes, perhaps you could argue that was a foul on Pep, but I think when it's Pep, it's hard to feel a little bit of sympathy. And after that, just kept his cool brilliantly, turned Joseph on inside and out, fine finish, and then plundered a goal later. So I think we're going to be looking at Costa leading the line for Spain. Right. Elsewhere, though, I think Spain were probably better when they weren't playing through Costa. Isco was wonderful. Jordi Alba got up in support of the attack really well. I think there's a lot to be positive about for Spain. Obviously, they conceded three goals, but Mm. you could argue that one was a penalty from an individual error. One was a moment of absolute genius and one was a slight... Uh, you know, a lapse of concentration for Ronaldo's second. So perhaps... Wait, OK, so let's talk about David De Gea then, who's been hailed as one of the, the strong points of this Spain squad coming into the, the World Cup. Didn't make a single save in that game, I think I'm right in saying, and spilled Ronaldo's shot, a pretty, what the Italians would call, a very resistible shot for the second goal. But it, is that an issue or is that just one of those things, Matt? You wonder if it's an issue because he, he made a mistake against Switzerland in a warm-up friendly actually uh, to concede a goal against them. And uh, I mean, it's perhaps two plus two equals five, but he's maybe more affected by the managerial situation than anyone else because as soon as Lopetegui was in, uh, announced as the next Real Madrid manager, there were reports everywhere about how he's going to try and sign De Gea again uh, this summer. And you wonder whether he's perhaps a little bit distracted by everything that's going on or this noise around him. Yeah, I haven't seen too much of the, the post-game analysis, but have there been any replays where uh, where Sergio Ramos bangs into him just before that shot? I didn't see any, no. Maybe, maybe he can claim concussion. All right, possibly. What do you think, Tom? What, what conclusions would you dare draw from this 3-3 spectacular? Um, I think, as Jack said, I think it's a, a big game for Diego Costa in that the, the feeling with him is that he doesn't really fit into this Spain team. He's obviously not a very Spain sort of footballer in terms of the sort of football they've played over the last few years. But I think tonight we saw what he brings to the team and it's all the sort of un stuff that no one else does. You look at the first goal, long ball from Busquets. He bullies both centre-backs and scores. Second goal, goal. Yeah, brilliant goal. The second goal gets on the end of a knockdown in the box. The sort of scrappy, okay, first goal wasn't scrappy, but he really had to fight Hmm. first to win the ball, then to hold the defenders off. So it's not a perfect marriage in the sense that, you know, he doesn't, he's not a natural foil for players like Isco, Silva, Iniesta. But what we saw tonight was that he can be that sort of, that battering ram, you know, who who breaks down opposition defences when Tiki Taka can only take them so far. That Um, little bit of rough. That little bit of rough. Yeah. Uh, also, I think quite a really encouraging game for Portugal mm. in that we all wondered whether, you know, we know that they're poor starters at, at, at big tournaments and, you know, they really battled their way to, to victory at Euro 2016. But, you know, they went after Spain right from the off. They caused them problems on the counter-attack the whole way through. And I don't think there would have been too many complaints if Spain had, had held on for the win. But that to equalise the way they did and to get that point will give them so much belief. Yeah, everyone's 
noted, of course, the uh, bizarre build-up for Spain, losing their manager or firing their manager two days before. But the Portuguese camp hasn't exactly been tranquil in the days leading up to this game. Ajax. That's right. You've got the players at Sporting Lisbon involved in this civil war, really, at the club. And They've that, walked out on the club. Yeah, that's right. They've kind of rescinded the contracts after fans invaded the change rooms and attacked the players. So that must have been on their minds. Those issues are there. And then you've got Cristiano Ronaldo's wrangles with the Spanish tax man, the timing of which you might call into question, given the... Uh, are you suggesting that the Spanish tax authorities were deliberately trying to stir up trouble within the Portuguese camp? No comment, James. All right. <laughs> Well, Ronaldo certainly handled the attacks pretty well this evening and all that kind of thing. All right, well, they both look pretty tasty, but it is a draw that means that neither tops the group after the uh, first set of games. That pleasure goes to Iran, great header, uh, albeit at the wrong end from Buhadus. Was this a fair result? Not really, in the sense that the story of the game was basically that Morocco had all the possession um, and just didn't do anything with it. Um, lots of really uh, exciting attacking midfielders. Hakim Ziyech, who we talked about in the preview show. Yunus Belonda, the playmaker. Amin Harit, who who was very lively, I thought, until he went off towards the end. But never really had any sort of cutting edge. Iran had a couple of chances on the break and the game looked like it was drifting towards a, a, a seemingly quite inevitable nil-nil draw. And then as his Buhadus get shot out of a cannon uh, and Iran have this completely improbable win, their first win at a World Cup since 1998. And having tipped Morocco as my dark horses, they now are facing a very sizable struggle to get out of the group because if they've lost their first game to Iran and we've seen how well Spain and Portugal are doing, Mm. that's probably it for them, you'd you'd have thought. I thought Iran played it really well. I thought yeah. it was excellent game management from them. Uh, Quiroz, which he's shown before with, with Iran, he showed it at the last World Cup, especially in that game against Argentina where they only lost in the last minute. Uh, key takeaway about Quiroz is he doesn't seem to age at all. He looks exactly yeah. like he did at Old Trafford when he was Ferguson's assistant. But uh, they survived that first 20 minutes when Morocco really went for it. And I think Morocco knew that if they didn't score in that opening period, Iran were going to settle back, sit deep, look to counter-attack, which they did. And Morocco was sending a full-back so high that Iran almost cut them a couple of times before getting that goal right at the end. All right. Although they didn't actually have a shot in the second half, Iran has still managed to sneak a 95th minute winner. I also really enjoyed Morocco's cutting-edge approach to concussion Victims. The old slap them in the face and sluice them with water approach. Yeah, I've not seen that done before. It was a new one. I mean, clearly he had to go off, but then as a result of him going off, Nordin Amrabat, his brother Sofian comes on, right. commits the very avoidable foul that leads to the free kick, and that's that's the no goal way. that gave Iran so victory. That, so was all, all connected, all began with the, you wonder with the if, concussion incident. You wonder mm. if uh, Nordin Amrabat woke up especially confused thinking he was at the South Africa World Cup because right. to general horror coming through the... Uh, the TV screens was not just the sound of co-commentary from Ian Dowie, but also the Vuvuzela. The made Vuvuzela, return, yeah. which made it the long-awaited return. Yes. Fantastic. Well, Tom, you... I mean, like, that wasn't on the cards at all, was it? No. I, I, no, one, no one suggested there was going to be Vuvuzela action, or have I missed that? I read it was going to be spoons. That was the instrument of the 2018 Spoon Russia World Cup. The kind of cockney, yeah, thigh spoons. I don't know where I read that. I mean, maybe I dreamt it, but I definitely read spoons, so... So far, at least, Vuvuzelas have been localised to that one game. Mm. So let's hope that it's... Uh, was it? Where was that? Was it that St. was in St. Petersburg. St. It's not a local you'd necessarily expect there to be a kind of outbreak of folkloristic South African musical. Certainly not. Let's lock it down. Lock the whole city down. OK, yeah. <laughs> now, a long way away from St. Petersburg, as most things seem to be, in Ekaterinburg, it was Egypt, Uruguay, 
And again, a 1-0 win. Uruguay overcoming their own sluggish start. And then the mass ranks of the Egyptian defence to late on grab the winner through Jimenez. Obviously not a great performance from Uruguay. And I wonder if they were a little bit undercooked coming into the tournament. They only, contrary to a lot of the countries, they only had one friendly before the tournament. And that was against Uzbekistan. It was a very easy game. So the way they were playing, Luis Suarez especially, he was looked like he was in Wayne Rooney at the start of a Premier League season mode. Oh. He was Everyone piled in on, on Luis Suarez on, on social media. Was he really that bad? People were, I think, mainly having a go at the misses. For me, the misses weren't the issue. It was the kind of the way he was throwing his hands around, looking really like he'd been on holiday rather than training for this. I'm sure he hasn't been, but he, he certainly wasn't at the races. And Edison Cavani, I think, had special reason to be annoyed because he put two lovely passes through mm. to send him through on goal. And Having problems with the misses, it really is like... <laughs> Rooney at the start of a Premier League season. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's it. And I think they got out of jail with that because Egypt, having found a foothold in the game, I don't mm. think really took enough risks. A lot of people are saying they should have brought Salah on, but I think that obviously wasn't possible. He's not fit yet. They almost got away with it. Love this tweet from Johnny Blaine early on in Egypt, Uruguay, saying, looking at the pace of this game, the Bengals had it right. Yes, slow, slow right, burn of that right, one. Right. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right. Hey, and now here's a quick question before, before we move on. And that was Friday's action. But one of the things was uh, in that terrific Spain-Portugal game, uh, a Mexican wave, uh, which caught a lot of us by surprise. Mars Lambert, though, occasion to, to write in and say, what do other countries call a Mexican wave? Tom. Well, Mexico, right. to start at the country of origin or one of the potential countries of origin, does not call it a Mexican wave. They call it La Ola. Um, and obviously we think of it as a Mexican wave in this country because it was during the 1986 World yeah. Cup in Mexico that people started seeing the wave for the first time. But there are counterclaims yeah. in Certainly the United in States. Certainly in Italy, they don't think of it as a Mexican wave. They just call oh. it the wave. And I'm pretty sure that that it was being done in South Bend, Indiana at Notre Dame games. Where, and the Americans have such a culture of basically crowds getting together and entertaining themselves during the quiet spells of their organised sporting occasions. Jack, what's your view on this? I don't have strong views on it, my friend. All right, Matt. I'm amazed that there was a Mexican wave in that match because Mexican wave usually signals a poor game, doesn't it? But it was a 3-3 thriller, so... I think you can do a Mexican wave because you're bored, but you can also do it just as a, a, an outpouring of emotion, of joy, of being a participating, it's a, a communal It's a sign of general giddiness sometimes yeah. as well. Like the novelty of a new stadium, <laughs> excitement. And Look, been once broken there. out here in the studio. <laughs> we can't stop ourselves. Right. Okay, great. Well, let's have a quick pause then, just to collect our, ourselves, and then Saturday's games. Woohoo! They're hot ones. Sun, sea, sand, and football. Watching the World Cup on holiday sounds like paradise until you try watching a game online and realise seconds before kickoff that it's blocked. Well, instead of bemoaning your decision to book a trip during a tournament that comes around once every four years, you need to get yourself a virtual private network from bestvpn.com and you'll be able to access the internet freely wherever you are this summer, all for less than the price of a pint. Because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can get 70% off a VPN by visiting bestvpn.com podcast. Bestvpn.com will set you up with a VPN in minutes so you can watch the football from your deck chair or by the pool. And when it comes to security, bestvpn.com will also protect your internet activity from prying eyes on open Wi-Fi networks. 
No matter where you are in the world, you can access your online home comforts with a VPN. So unlock the internet today with bestvpn.com. Find out more and get 70% off by heading to bestvpn.com slash podcast. Saturday, 11am, we get our first look at France as they take on their Group C rivals Australia and Kazan out east. That's at 11am. At 2pm, Group D gets underway with the biggest name in the game versus the smallest nation. It's Messi's Argentina against Iceland, their first ever meeting. Ooh, that's in Moscow. From five o'clock, from the enticingly titled Mordovia Arena in Saransk, Peru, Denmark. Also their first ever meeting. And then Saturday evening viewing for you is from seven o'clock, Batch Group D, Croatia, Nigeria, at the most westerly venue in this tournament, Kaliningrad Stadium on the Gulf of Finland. If you don't fancy any of that, because who knows, you might have a life or something, Don't worry, you can tune in Sunday morning, we'll tell you all about it. But let's have a quick chat about it all now. And first of all, so excited, Jack, so excited to see Argentina, especially against Iceland. Because outside the four main teams, we're going to say who's going to win this World Cup. When you're looking for an outside contender, they're the obvious choice. Runners-up in the last one and runners-up in the last two Cooper Americas as well. Could they be a contender? Runners-up, of course, last time. Didn't have the best of a qualifying campaign. But some of the friendlies since have looked a bit bit better, Jack. Have they? Is there signs of something there? Well, they've had a slightly disrupted preparation in that they played Haiti in back in Argentina before travelling over to Europe. How did the Haiti game go? Uh, they won that one. 4-0, 4-0, fairly yeah. comfortably, as right. you'd expect. They were meant to play Israel. Initially, it was going to be in Haifa, but then it was moved to Jerusalem. And there were protests and eventually death threats, uh, some of them directed towards Lionel Messi. So that was cancelled, a bit of a mess. Argentina's federation, again, not really covering itself in glory. So they've only had one pre-tournament friendly, much in the same way as Uruguay. So it's hard to assess their form on that point of view. And I already kind of outlined a few of my concerns over them in the preview show. But what we what we can say that's mm. new is that it looks like Jorge Sampaoli is really changing a few things at the last minute. So he's brought in Marcos Rojo, looks like he's going to play at centre-back. Well, I've, I've got this team here in front of me. It looks like they've already announced it. This yeah, they are. Friday evening. Very early. He had a press conference earlier today and basically he's playing a, a 4-2-3-1. There was talk that he was going to play a midfield diamond. That's not happening. You've got Lucas Bilia and Javier Mascherano at the base. I think people see that as a fairly defensive block there. It could have been, you know, Lo Celso or Baniega. Two players there blocking. Rojo in for Federico Fazio. Eduardo Salvio at right back, which is interesting. Normally a right winger for Benfica, mm. but he's played there a couple of times. Caballero is going to get the nodding goal. And really the, the wild card further forward, where it would have been Manuel Lanzini, is uh, Maxi Meza, who plays in... Uh, plays a domestic football for Independiente. He is someone he made his debut in the 6-1 defeat against Spain and really was the only player to emerge from that game with any credit. He's really made a good impression on the squad. Apparently they're all saying, you know, he's someone who's new to the setup. Obviously he's only started that one match, but he's impressed his teammates in training. He's versatile. San Paoli has said he can play wide, he can come inside. And pleasingly, for anyone who's going to watch, he's a nutmeg expert, so keep an eye out for him. What do they call nutmegs in Argentina, Tom? Well, the main name for nutmeg in Argentina is caño, which means a pipe. 
Okay. Um, so it's like pipe, tunnel. You get a lot of that in, yeah. in nutmeg terminology. But there's another term, sotana, which means cassock. And that comes from the taunt that you'd say to the player you just nutmegged. Ponte uno sotana. Like you're a monk. Wear, wear a cassock next time, as in if you've got a big billowy item of clothing blocking the space oh, between see. your legs, perhaps you won't get nutmegged. So we could have cassocks in the Cossacks in this World Cup. Brilliant. Hey. That's excellent. Uh, and, and, and alongside Mazer up front, of course, there's this Aguero fellow who's, who's back playing his first... I mean, he hasn't featured in the Premier League since uh, when? March? Uh, yeah, off the top of my head. I, th- I think he... From the people I've spoken to, he's the popular choice, really. Higuain, you could argue, offers a little bit more in all-round play, but Aguero is the sharp point of the attack. And I think I think Messi probably prefers to play with him. He's a little bit more on his wavelength. Like you say, fitness question marks, but I, yeah, I'm fairly pleased to see him in the lineup. How How nervous are they about this? This game and the campaign in Argentina. Yeah, a little bit. Not least Iceland's height, actually. We know that Iceland are very good at dead balls and they like to put crosses in. Um, Argentina's starting lineup, the one that Sampaoli has already named, the average height is 1m76 compared to, they're thinking, the Argentine press, that Iceland's could be close to 1m90. So they've been putting some special focus on training how to defend dead balls. I think perhaps Rocco's entry will help them with that because he's actually, despite not being the tallest, he's actually pretty good in the air. But I would be worried if I were them because it's a fairly small team and we know that Iceland are going to put great stock in those moments. If they're going to spring a surprise, it will be then. Right. And yeah, I think that could be a, a few worrying moments for them. Okay. Do, do you know when the last time that Argentina actually won a trophy was? Fabulous Argentina, one of the greats of world football. When was the last time they actually won a trophy, Tom? Matt? I should know this. It was the 2001 Copa America, was it? Jack? Listeners? Nobody? 1993. 93. Yeah. 93. But wow. more positive Argentina ah, stats. Okay, here we go. Since they lost to Cameroon mm-hmm. in the opening game of the 1990 World Cup, they've won all six of their opening games at World Cups. Ooh, that's good. And of course, their, f- their favourite time, imagine, to continue that streak here against Strakania Okar a.k.a. Iceland, the tiny, tiny and small and smallest nation ever to feature in the World Cup, population 577 times smaller than Nigeria's, all that kind of thing. And, and what a start for them, their first ever World Cup game, they're taking on Messi. But just remember, what was their debut in Euro 2016? It was against Cristiano Ronaldo. And they drew 1-1. Do you remember how mad he was afterwards? And he, he kind of cussed them in the, the post-game comments and said they were never going to win anything. And of course, yeah, he did all right. But they got to the quarterfinals. Could they have Messi cussing after this game tomorrow? What do you think, Matt? I think they could. They, they, uh, we know how they're going to play. They always set up 4-4-2. Um, although the coach, Al Grimson, has uh, made a couple of changes in, in qualifying, tried a few different things. Uh, they won the group as well ahead of Croatia, Ukraine, Turkey, which was a, a really strong performance. And like Jack says, I think that they're going to be a threat definitely at set pieces with uh, Bod Varsen, Sigurdsson in attack and Gilfie Sigurdsson obviously uh, providing those uh, those set pieces. Right. He's given lots of his players caps and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if someone got a brace because he used to be a dentist. Hey. <laughs> He's also said yesterday that he is not going to mark, man-mark Messi. OK. So, As in he personally, or because <laughs> that would be a... <laughs> I don't think he'd be very good at that. 
All right. Slight question. Sorry, James. A slight question mark about uh, Iceland. Gilfie Sigurdsson, we know, is the man who makes them tick. He's played one match since March Mm. um, because of his knee ligament injury. He played in their friendly against Ghana last week. Um, How did that go? They drew 2-2, but clearly from a fitness perspective, he's not going to be quite on top of his game. Um, Mm. So that'll be a concern. Okay. Iceland haven't won a match since January. They played two World Cup teams in their tournament build-up, Mexico and Peru, and they lost both those matches. Interesting fact, if you like that kind of thing, their winger Albert Gudmundsson, his mother, his father, his grandfather and his great-grandfather have all represented the Icelandic national team. Even in Iceland, that's quite remarkable. And Albert Gudmundsson's father, oh, yeah? Gudmund Benediktsson, is the crazy commentator from Euro 2016. The, the guy who did this... <laughs> Gunman Benedictson, who knows if we, we might not be hearing that kind of thing from him after this Argentina game. Are you sure it's the same one, though, Tom? Relatively sure, yeah. Oh, relatively. How, how many Gunman Benedictsons can there be? I mean, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, now, in other Argentine football-related news, by the way, Matt, Marcelo Bielsa, is now confirmed as Leeds' new manager. How many managers is that in how many years? Tenth manager in four years, Ellen Tenth Road. manager. And, and that tally's likely to go up soon again, isn't it, to be fair? Well, yeah, this is Bielsa. So he had 19 games at Lille. He didn't even manage a game at Lazio and then 41 at Marseille. So he has form as well for short-term stays at clubs. And uh, I, I'm just ridiculously excited about it. Though, Are you? I think it's going to be brilliant. I mean, it's always electric wherever Bielsa goes. He had that brilliant Chile side, uh, his athletic Bilbao side. I remember going to Old Trafford when they won 3-2 uh, that game and... Uh, in the Europa League and Ander Herrera was talking about how he felt surely the manager was going to tell us to try and close it out when we're winning 2-1 and he was urging them to pour forward go and get a third goal go and get a fourth goal and I think Leeds fans they've uh, really suffered over recent years and since they've dropped out of the Premier League so it's a lot for them to look forward to definitely Will it work do you think? No You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power Elsewhere in Argentina's group, Group D, Croatia, on Saturday, taking on Nigeria. The Nigerians, the Super Eagles, we know they have a world-class strip. Do they, in football terms, have an outfit to match? Well, let's ask Anu Adoye, who is a Nigerian football expert in Lagos and can be found on Yahoo Sport and SB Nation. When the draws were made for the World Cup, we had very high expectations uh, because our manager, Gennotro, has put together the youngest team at this World Cup Finals. Uh, we have 18 debutants, uh, only five of these players were at the World Cup in 2014. But uh, the recent friendlies, uh, we lost to Serbia and we also lost to the Czech Republic as dampened expectations a bit. Our manager doesn't exactly know the system to go with. He experimented with a 4-3-3 in the first half at Wembley and we were terrible. But when he switched things around to a 3-5-2 in the second half, uh, it moved the Wobi Central. We became more expansive and got the ball forward quickly to Odion Igalo, which made us a more formidable athlete. But expectations are not as high as they were back in December when the draws were made. And um, our f- first choice fullback, Sheo Abdullahi, we have questions over his participation tomorrow because he's a Muslim and he just finished fasting, the Ramadan fast today. And our manager, 
doesn't think he will be fit enough to play tomorrow. Same for Ahmed Musa, who is also a Muslim. And the problem is, Victor Moses is one of the leaders of the team. He, Mikel Obi, Kenneth Omuro, and uh, Ahmed Musa and Onazi were the only players that were in Brazil. It was fantastic during qualification, but in recent months, he hasn't been as decisive as we would want him to be, especially in the games, in the pre-World Cup qualifiers. But the thing is, this can be said for everybody in the team. The team has been really disappointing for over the last two games. Well, many thanks there to Anu Adoye. As I say, you can find him on Yahoo Sport and SB Nation. Anu also mentioning that he thinks, you know, we saw Saudi's goalkeeper having a bit of a, a difficult debut in the World Cup. He thinks Nigeria's could do even worse. Jack, I see you nodding emphatically. Yeah, I saw him at the England game at Wembley and mm. he didn't impress me too much. He was good at picking the ball out of the air. He's very tall, but he looked quite shaky in his distribution and the goal he conceded to Harry Kane wasn't too good. Mm. And I think that, that age thing actually could be crucial in this game. Croatia, Matt, what do you think? I think it's really difficult to know what to expect. They've got a lot of quality, obviously midfield with Modric, Rakitic, Brozovic and uh, Perisic on the wing, mm. who's going to be supplying those crosses to Mandzukic. And we've discussed already Argentina being uh, slightly vertically challenged and I'm sure that they'll be uh, looking to make the most of Mandzukic in that match. Mm. Uh, but at the back, you wonder if they're going to be a bit shaky. It's difficult to believe that Vedran Choluk is still around. He's only 32, actually. It was a bit like a Premier League flashback seeing Yuri Zhirkov uh, the other day as well from yeah. Russia. And we all know about Dejan Lovren and his lapses in concentration. So I think uh, they'll find it a challenge against Nigeria, even if Nigeria aren't too optimistic. Pow! Listeners, it's Saturday and there's so much football awaiting you. Talks about the excitement in Group D. How about Group C? It features France taking on Australia, but also Denmark up against Peru. Fact one, neither Peru nor Denmark have lost in the last 18 months. Fact two, Denmark are one of the tallest teams in the tournament, while Peru are one of the shortest. What are they making of this game in Denmark? Well, producer Ben spoke to Niels Harold from Danish Eurosport. Here's what he said. Everybody was saying, hey, Peru, that's a good draw. And then to turn the newspapers or, uh, to the next side and the Peru people were going, hey, this is a beautiful draw. Great, easy team to play in the first game. So we are a bit, you know, I think we're not underestimating them, but I think it's going to be more difficult than people imagine because this is a good game. Came out of the South American uh, qualifying group. And even though they are very small, that's what we hear a lot about in Denmark right now, we have tall people who can make a good threat against them. It's going to be very tough because this is their first World Cup game for 36 years. And I I can see them going totally mad if they beat Denmark. And uh, I, I suspect it's going to be a very tough game. So obviously, Niels, we know all about Christian Eriksen here in England. But uh, tell us some of the other players in the Danish squad that we should look out for. It's going to be difficult because Christian is going to be so much in the, in the sense of the attention. But obviously, Thomas Delaney, the guy with the, uh, with the Irish surname, has got a new contract in Borussia Dortmund. And I believe he's going to be flying into the World Cup on, on that contract. Obviously, Kasper Schmeichel is going to be very important for us. We have a bit of a challenge in the sense of defence with Andreas Bierland out with an injury. Um, so a lot of responsibility will hang on Andreas Christensen, who you know from Chelsea, who had a bit of a form dip. But look out for Pionicisto. He's very good. He's got a big repertoire as, uh, as far as creativity goes. He's very fast. And if he, if he can hit the form, 
he's going to be he's going to be quite a good experience for you guys. Uh, like Matt, you're a fan of Peony Sisto. Yeah, I think I discussed him in a preview show. Actually, talked about he scored against Manchester United in oh yeah he did the Europa League a couple mm. years ago, and uh, a lot of big clubs tracking him, but ended up at Celta Vigo and uh, nine assists in La Liga this season. Only four players managed more, which is pretty decent going. is 35,000 or some of them anyway Peruvian fans wandering the streets of Russia looking for a, a game they can go and jump up and down in their beautiful sash jerseys at uh, well, here's one for them on Saturday afternoon as they do take on uh, Denmark that Peru didn't have the best of qualifying they're back after 36 years can they stick around in a while? They've played five friendly since qualifying they haven't been defeated in any of them look they, they beat Croatia, Iceland and Saudi Arabia and they drew against Sweden. Are Peru actually going to spring some surprises here, Matt? I think they could. They're a proper team. Um, I'm really excited to see them at this World Cup because we've already seen it on the streets of Russia. They're bringing a party atmosphere to, to the tournament and I've watched them a couple of times in build-up matches. I watched them play Saudi Arabia. They won 3-0. Very straightforward victory in that game. A friendly that took place in Switzerland but obviously Peru's biggest victory in Switzerland recently is uh, the tribunal ruling that Paulo Guerrero could play at this right. World Cup. Um, they a, also, a little detail, I didn't realise this, but uh, some, Simon Kjar, the Danish defender, was one of three players who penned an open letter to FIFA urging clemency on his case. Isn't that a lovely touch? Yeah, he was the captains of all uh, the other teams in Group C, actually. Oh, so right. Mila Jedinak and Hugo Lloris as well uh, all appealed for Guerrero to be able to play at the tournament. And obviously that helped influence the decision, I believe. That wasn't the only trio of people involved in his trial either. Initially, when it went to FIFA... His Brazilian lawyers, so he plays in Brazil for Flamengo, so he had Brazilian lawyers. They called as character witnesses three mummies from 500 years ago. Really? Yeah. How did that go? True story, because what Guerrero did is he drank coca tea, which yeah. is uh, a cultural thing in Peru. And these mummies from 500 years ago, in their bodies when scientists were doing in-depth tests, right. had hints of the chemical of that comes from the coca plant, Brilliant. 500 years later, the lawyers said, look, this is how long it sticks around in the body. Guerrero, you know, might have had coca leaf as a kid even. Yeah. It could still be in his body. You know, the, the notion was that he had cocaine or something, which wasn't the case. And it's just proof that you're innocent until Peruvian guilty. Jeez, Jack, you were doing so well there. That was like literally the best part of the whole podcast. And now we have to chop the whole thing. <laughs> Let's move on, everyone. There's obviously loads of stories of people selling houses in Peru to make it to Russia. And then there's one fantastic... What, they sell their houses to afford the trip to Russia? To afford the trip to Russia. But there's one fantastic story today about a Peruvian fan, 24-year-old chap, who uh, came from Lima, and he put on 25 kilograms to qualify for an obese seat because the normal (laughs) tickets had all sold out. And I've got a quote here. He said, I looked at the requirements... I had to have a disability, something specific for women, and suffering from morbid obesity, over 35 BMI. I was at 30. I did the math. I needed to put on 25 kilograms. Wow, that's sensational. Wow. Heroic. Dedication. That's amazing. That's a lot of kilos, isn't it? Oh, it's an enormous amount. It's I huge. mean, that's... Yeah. It's like a third of any of us. Wow, that's, I mean, that's the kind of thing. Rob De Niro does that. They give him an Oscar. Just saying. Um, all right, well, I, I can't help but wish... I mean, I love the Danes, and, and Nils was, was, was terrific... But you kind of want Peru to get something, and soon, 
from this, their first World Cup since 1982. Tell us a bizarre fact, Jack, about why they didn't make it to the following World Cup, 1986. Well, the man who will be in the dugout for them against Denmark scored a goal against them for Argentina that cost them the place. Right, and he's now their manager. Zero to hero. The great thing about that, though, is that he was left out of the Argentine squad for that World Cup as well, so it's his chance to uh, to make amends. Wow. Imagine if they get Argentina. That's huge. Anyway, let's finish off with a quick chat about the opening game on Saturday. It might already be underway, listeners, so we'll be quick. France are taking on Australia. Tom, you are Mr France for us. Is this going to be as one-sided as Russia against Saudi Arabia or can the Socceroos do a Senegal? I think in terms of the balance of play it'll be very one-sided I think France will have all the ball and Australia will sit deep and try and contain them uh, and hit them on the counter-attack France haven't been firing on all cylinders for a little while Didier Deschamps ideas about how he wants his team to play have slowly started to, to take form but then a bit of a surprise has come out of the France camp this week that he is going to go with quite a youthful lineup against Australia um, with neither of his first choice fullbacks starting Gibril Sidibe who's got a bit of a, a knee concern and Benjamin Mendy um, will be on the bench Benjamin Pavard, Lucas Hernandez will start. Um, Corentin Taliso of Bayern Munich is expected to get the nod over Blaise Matuidi in midfield. And Ousmane Dembele is uh, going to start up front with Kylian Mbappe and Antoine Griezmann in a really exciting looking front three. That is sensational, isn't it? They've had a bit of friendly time together. There have been flashes of, of good things, um, but it's it's very much in an embryonic stage, this attack. So it's it's a good, good chance for us to see and for, for France to see... Whether, whether the three of them can click. As I understand it, there are two big knocks against this French team. One is the patchy form of Hugo Lloris of late, and the other is Deschamps himself, who you say his ideas are beginning to come together. In the last four friendlies, I think they've had four different formations, and that's kind of been a running theme with him. He's he's actually he's actually been quite consistent of late. Um, he has always been a 4-3-3 man. And midway through Euro 2016, it wasn't really working. He switched to a 4-2-3-1. He started playing Antoine Griezmann just off Olivier Giroud. And suddenly everything fell into place. Griezmann starts banging in goals. They get to the final and they should have won the final. Obviously, we know what happened. They lost to Portugal. Uh, He stuck with that shape throughout most of qualifying. And they weren't great in qualifying. Um, They had some really disappointing draws. You know, Luxembourg, they lost away to Sweden. He's gone back to the drawing board um, and his thinking now appears to be he's going to have a three-man midfield, um, quite a fluid three-man attack, and then the full-backs providing a lot of the width, which is quite a rarity for Deshaun. He generally likes his full-backs to, to play more conservatively. So there is quite a lot of novelty in this lineup, but I think it's been a pretty positive camp. You know, we've not heard any of the, the whisperings about players falling out with each other that we sometimes get with France um, to be fair they haven't actually played a game yet this this is true and also it's worth underlining that since they won the World Cup in 1998 they've only won three group games at what? the tournament really? against Togo Honduras and Switzerland so across the board in recent tournaments their group stage form has been iffy and we find them again going into a tournament with huge potential mm. loads of exciting players but we're still waiting for it all to fall into place. A group of players that's worth more than a billion dollars, according to an American website that I read earlier. Uh, Australia, probably not worth a billion dollars, but heart. You can't put a price on heart, can you? What else can you tell me about the Socceroos, Jack? 
Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing if Tim Cahill can continue his scoring run. He's scored in the last three World Cups. Mm-hmm. Four in a row would be, I think, a massive achievement for someone from Australia. He's also or scored anybody. almost half of Australia's World Cup goals ever. Is that right? If he scores their next goal, it would be six of 12. So he's currently on five of 11, oh, okay. so he's, he's doing very well. All right. Aaron Moy, of course, the, uh, the go-to man in the midfield. Uh, Tim Cahill, a little bit more of a... Uh, an impact sub at this point, I, I think. Um, Matt, Australia? I, I was reading something the other day that's saying they're not too sure whether Moyes is the perfect pick for this Australian side Ooh. with the balance in midfield because uh, you have Yedinak and Luongo, I think, will sit a bit deep, and then Rogic as well, a Celtic midfielder. And they were talking about how Moy will probably play, but he perhaps isn't necessarily the best fit. I guess we'll see. Well, Yednak didn't go to the pre-match press conference despite having initially been scheduled to go so the talk is that he has been axed despite being the captain ruthlessly axed and it could be Luongo who starts alongside Moy wow so, all these questions see. you know what listen switch on the TV it's probably on at the moment and uh, all our questions might already be answered anyway with that in mind let's wrap this Totally Football Show at the World Cup up by getting the odds on tomorrow's games with producer Ben who's speaking to Paddy Power Thank you, Jimbo. Lee Price is back here again. It's like he's never left the studio. Lee, we had uh, a very interesting couple of games today, but let's look ahead to tomorrow. It's kicking off with France versus Australia. France, they're one of the favourites for the tournament. They're going to stroll through this one. They should do, unless they self-implode, in which case this is surely the fixture in which that happens. Uh, France are the shortest price for any team in this first round of fixtures. They're 1-5 to to beat Australia, and even that looks generous to the Aussies. The draw's 5-1, to and Australia are a mammoth 12-1 to to win, uh, which is a bit mad for a two-team match. Elsewhere in that group, it's Peru versus Denmark. Uh, give us some of the action here. Yeah, this is tight, this one. This is interesting. Peru are 21-10, to the same price as the draw. Denmark are 11-8, to but obviously with Paolo Guerrero back for Peru... Who knows what could happen? He's 9-2 to score first, and that would be fitting for his story, certainly. The game for the hipsters is surely Croatia versus Nigeria. Um, I fancy Nigeria in this one. Well, if you do, our odds are quite generous. Uh, we make Croatia 4-6 to six favourites for this. Nigeria quite lengthy at 9-2, to two, the draw 5-2. to two. That group is wide open, and this result could determine a lot of things in terms of how that goes. And finally, the most exciting game, Argentina versus Iceland. It's sold out faster than any other game apart from the final. Are you doing a money-back special on this one? We are, yeah. We're doing a money-back special if Messi scores, and that's on all losing correct score, goal scorer, and what odds Paddy markets. And surely he does score. We're odds on these scores any time. Argentina are 2-7 to seven to win that match. Iceland 10-1. to one. Well, you can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com. 18 plus only, begambleaware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, that wraps it up for this edition of Totally Football Show, Totally at the World Cup. But we'll be back with another one late on Saturday after the final game. Do hope you'll be joining us. Remember, we're here every day through the group stages, listeners. You can find us on Twitter at The Totally Show and on Facebook and that kind of thing. Tom Williams, many thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Matt Stanger. Thanks. Jack Lang. Thanks. What a great day to have been a witness to the football history and that. Listeners, thank you for being with us. We're giving you a Totally Wave. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. Subscribe now and get the latest episode delivered right to your phone for free. And seeing as you're still here, here's an extract from the new Gazette in Italy audiobook.
It's written by Daniel Storey, read by James Richardson and published by HarperCollins. Have a listen and if you like what you hear, you can download it from iTunes or Audible for just £4.99. Remember, it's exclusively an audiobook and it's called Gaza in Italy. In 1991, Tottenham Hotspur were deep in the throes of financial austerity. Chairman Irving Scholar had floated the club on the stock exchange in 1983, the first club in the world to be publicly listed, turning Spurs from being a sporting institution into a commercial entity where they would diversify into leisure wear and computer systems. Scholar set a trend that would eventually become the norm, but Tottenham soon ran into trouble. The diversification of business interests was supplemented by investment in new players, including the arrival of Gascoigne himself in 1988 from Newcastle United and the building of a new stand at White Hart Lane. The club soon had mounting debts and unhappy lenders. Scholar turned to media mogul Robert Maxwell, who secretly lent him £1.1 million. But when Scholar's business partner Paul Bobroff discovered this, the pair fell out. That left manager Terry Venables to search for backers to save the club from financial ruin, eventually leading to Alan Sugar's involvement. Sugar had been taken to White Hart Lane as a child, although he had not shown a particularly keen interest in the club or football as a whole. Sugar did the deal, made himself chairman and banned Scholar from the club. Sugar was not a strong argument for nominative determinism. He was a businessman, not a sugar daddy, and viewed Tottenham as an asset rather than a cherished possession. When Tottenham's finances were examined in great detail, the new chairman realised that players would have to be sold to wipe out debts. The newly established Gazamania ensured that Gascoigne was the most obvious star departure. In her book, Paul Gascoigne, The Inside Story, Nottage claims that she received a call to inform her that football agent Dennis Roach had been instructed by Tottenham to try and sell Gascoigne to a City A club after they had been put under pressure by the banks to raise capital. Gascoigne himself says that he first heard of a potential move in February 1991, when rumours surfaced that Lazio wanted him. He was upset, not at the interest from abroad, but that Tottenham had been discussing his exit without thinking to inform the player first, as if he was a product to be sold rather than a person. Gascoigne recalls feeling incredibly let down by Tottenham's behaviour, which clearly made the move away from White Hart Lane more attractive. With Italy the obvious destination and the World Cup still fresh in the memory, AC Milan and Lazio both made approaches to Tottenham, although Lazio's was far more concrete. But Gascoigne could just as easily have joined Juventus had things turned out differently. After the third-place playoff at Italia 90, Gianni Agnelli, head of Fiat and key advisor, with far more influence than that implies to Juventus, having run the club himself between 1947 and 1954, walked into the England dressing room and asked to speak to Gascoigne. The story goes that Gascoigne grabbed Agnelli in a boisterous headlock and slapped his head. Were it anyone else, we would assume exaggeration or apocrypha, but this was Gascoigne. We can assume that Agnelli was not accustomed to such treatment, and certainly not by someone he had never previously met. Either way, the deal was never likely from that point on. Lazio soon became the frontrunners for a deal. President Gianmarco Caleri had become transfixed with the idea of signing Gascoigne after witnessing his popularity during the World Cup believing him the perfect signing to improve the club on and off the field, and general manager Maurizio Mancini was on board. There was also a story that Gianmarco's brother Giorgio, who would soon pass away, was desperate for Lazio to sign Gascoigne. After Giorgio's death, Gianmarco was eager to carry out his brother's wishes. Tottenham initially asked for £10 million from Lazio, which made an opening offer of half that amount. 
a fee of £7.5 million was eventually thrashed out, with an agreement that Gascoigne would be paraded around the Stadio Olimpico before Lazio's final home league game of the 1990-91 season. That took place a week after the FA Cup final. Meanwhile, Mel Stein and Len Lazarus, Gascoigne's two personal advisers, thrashed out the terms of Gascoigne's contract. Lazio's new signing would be paid £22,000 a week in Italy, ten times his wage at Tottenham. The star of English football was moving to Italy. To hear the full story of Gazza in Italy, download the exclusive audiobook on Audible or iTunes.